Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health and diabetes outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I am Elise Karen, Practice Improvement Coaching Lead for Cardio's Team Best Practices and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Today's podcast will focus on the topic of chronic disease management in the context of COVID-19 and social isolation. Specifically, we will discuss the challenges experienced by patients to engage in and successfully achieve a healthy lifestyle and share helpful tools and resources clinicians can use in talking with their patients. With me today is Dr. Eileen Seeholzer. Dr. Seeholzer is the Medical Director of the Weight Loss Surgery and Weight Management Center and the Metro Healthy Employee Wellness Initiative for the Metro Health System. She is an Associate Professor of Medicine and is faculty in the Center for Healthcare Research and Policy and the Center for Reducing Health Disparities at Case Western Reserve University at Metro Health. She is board certified in internal medicine and obesity medicine. Her work focuses on the development and implementation of tools, programs, and system-based interventions to help people engage in and sustain healthier lifestyles, particularly to reduce the impact of obesity and metabolic syndrome focus. She is also privileged to participate on projects that support the professional development and job satisfaction of primary care providers so that they may continue to provide and lead high-value, patient-centered, team-based care. Welcome, Dr. Seeholzer. Thank you. So, Dr. Seeholzer, why is being physically active during COVID-19 especially important? You know, for some people, the changes in their day and their life from COVID-19 pandemic has really been pretty minimal. But for many people, the changes have been much more substantial and even devastating. Changes cause stress and disruption in our lives. It makes it more difficult to focus on maintaining healthy habits. When a person's less engaged in healthy habits, feelings of stress often increase and we feel less able to manage the challenges we face, less in control. This is much more difficult in a less predictable time. On the other hand, if we're able, even at a minimal or moderate level, to really stick with some of those healthy habits, we're able to be more reflective and responsive than reactive. We can handle it better, and we can lessen the negative impacts from stress when we keep those healthy habits close during tough times. So how does being physically active and eating well impact us? There's a lot of impacts from physical activity and eating well that we don't really notice, really. Um, day to day, the most important medicines we actually take are our physical activity and the food that we eat. There's really not another combination of choices that so potently protects us against the problems and improves our health overall as activity and diet. So regular physical activity, both activity through the day as well as exercise activity, helps boost our immune function, increases our energy, it lowers our feelings of anxiety and irritability and low mood, which we certainly need during difficult times. When you start exercising regularly, within weeks you'll have improved uh, blood pressure, you'll have improved control of conditions like diabetes, you'll have reduced risk of heart attack and stroke. And generally speaking, most people feel more motivated and able to concentrate. Healthy food choices also have a strong impact on how we feel through the day overall too. 
And if we avoid or limit unhealthy foods like sugary beverages, things with high salt, processed foods, we lower the risk of weight gain, which most people know is pretty difficult in times like this, and can keep our health better and avoid risks from blood pressure, blood sugar, and cholesterol as well. What are some ways that we can help our patients overcome current barriers to exercising during the time of COVID-19? This is a really common question. People really are struggling now with how to exercise, when to exercise, and how to do it safely. The key to really engaging in physical activity right now is to start out with what's changed about your activity level since COVID-19. So many people working remotely are much less active through the day because their job involved walking at the workplace and, and now they're not there. Others may actually have more time to exercise because they're not commuting. So if your patient wants to increase activity, find out what activity they have done or like to do. Ask if they have practical access to their preferred activities now. If a person had an active job or an active commute, it might be that they can get a tracking device that they can use on their phone and try at home or in the neighborhood around them to get a certain number of steps per day to mimic what they used to be able to get at the workplace by doing exercise during their house or activity in their house. What we know is that less than 3,500 steps a day is a worrisome level and increases our cardiac risk. 7,500 steps or more a day really keeps us at a lower risk. So there's numerous virtual exercise resources available now that are free since COVID. There were many beforehand. So it's a good time to take advantage and try new things. You can live stream them on your phone or on the internet. Walking and dancing to favorite music, yoga, Pilates, kickboxing, high-intensity stuff to get your energy up during the day. All these things are really good options. If a person used to walk at the treadmill at the gym, you'll have to find out what their inside and outside options are. So think of it like this. Do they live near sidewalks, bike paths, an outdoor indoor track, or a shopping mall that can be used when the weather's crummy? Would they want to do a video walking? Do they have a buddy or a friend they can walk with outside in a safe way to stay motivated and socially connected? We know that exercise with a social connective is more emotionally successful as well as physically successful. Do they have a treadmill that a friend is not using? One of the things that's really come out is people actually can use uh, go into other people's exercise areas that they're not using and use these if they don't feel safe going to a gym, or they can borrow equipment from people that they're not using. Talking to someone else while on the treadmill and they're walking in a different place is another option. I've had several people do that. So people can have uh, more resources at home than they realize. Steps in your house are another real easy thing. A lot of times, especially if people have Fitbits or different wearables or just do different counting, people plan to do a certain number of flights of steps a day. Many people have weights they're not using. Even vegetable cans and bottles from your cupboard can be used for um, different weights. Um, so there's a lot of resources people have at home that can reduce stress, improve mood, and even increase social connection. And the last thing to remember is that mini workouts matter. If you could do three 10-minute workouts through the day, that counts as your 30 minutes. And sometimes that really helps uh, people who are working and having kids at home and trying to get those times really fitted in. You know, 10 minutes here while you're waiting for a load of wash to spin out, 10 minutes on a lunch break, 10 minutes while you're waiting for somebody to come home, those kinds of things. So just a follow-up question, is it important to walk in addition to doing all of those exercise options you suggested, or is one or the other enough? So I think what you're asking is, is it important to get a certain number of steps in the day in addition to the exercise options? Correct. So this is always a little difficult. Um, and the reason for that is you want to do things that get your heart rate up during the day if possible, but you want movement first and foremost. So for many people who either have difficulty movement because of pain or arthritis or things like this, accumulating steps for the day is a great option. But if they can't do that because of arthritis, then 
for them, fitting in that exercise bike might be the thing they can do. Or if they can safely go back to water aerobics, that might be the thing they can do. But the idea is really trying to be as active as you can through the day with, you know, not sitting for more than an hour at a time, getting up and moving around if possible, and accumulating that average of 30 minutes a day of moderate exercise, like walking or something like that. So as you're pointing out, it's kind of a both and. You want somebody to get their exercise time in that 30 minutes a day or more, but you also want their baseline activity to be at that 7,500 steps as well. So Dr. Seeholzer, where might our patients and providers find these resources for exercise? So there's a lot of places for free exercise. One resource that we have is the cardio physical activity handouts. And so you'll be able to see some good resources there that you can link your patients to that may fit their needs. Thanks so much, Dr. Seeholzer. What are some ways that we can help patients overcome current barriers to eating healthy during the time of COVID-19? So similarly to the way we approach physical activities, COVID-19 affects everyone. It just affects everyone differently. And so you really want to ask for that person in front of you what's changed in your eating since COVID-19. And then you're going to talk to them about whether they're eating healthier now than before. Again, I have some people who actually, because they're home, are cooking more and doing better. But we have a lot of people who are really struggling because actually they may be working more hours or being home, as one of my patients said, I need to put a mask on because I need to not go to the kitchen. So it's a little bit of a struggle just being home and having access to a kitchen all day long when you have kind of a baseline level of stress and newness from all the changes with COVID as well. So with those things, you want to kind of identify what's gone um, off from prior healthy eating and what might be the thing they want to work on. When you're looking to have them improve things, one of the simple ways to do it, because it's a little bit of a diet roadmap, is to use the healthy plate or a similar handout. Those are basically healthy eating index handouts, which help us identify high quality diet pieces so that people can look in the different quadrants of the plate and understand, you know, am I really getting vegetables and fruit in or has that really fallen off? And if I can, what are the ways I might want to do that with things I like? Am I getting the protein I need or has that kind of gone off or what's happened in the carbohydrate area? And most importantly, I would say is really identifying the snack food issue because that's been a huge issue for a lot of people and really talking to family members about what should not come in the house because really a lot of times if it's there, it gets eaten. And so really we're talking to the patient about how to talk to their partners and their kids about really keeping a healthy food environment at home and being explicit about it. The other thing that's really important for healthy eating during stressful times and reduces stress is having common meals. And one of the things when you have less structure is sometimes even though you're together more, you actually don't have those common times for sitting down. And we know from an obesity prevention standpoint, from a disease prevention standpoint, from a depression prevention standpoint, that sitting down and sharing prepared meals together improves not only health and it can help weight, but also improves emotional connections and well-being as well. So those are some basic ways you can really approach identifying where a patient wants to work on things and helping them move in a direction that they feel is good for them. And how do you help patients know that they are making progress in avoiding weight gain? This is such an important question. There are two major strategies to help people stick with changes and see and maintain the progress they're making. One of the first strategies is very unexciting, but it's really, really important, and that strategy is tracking. When patients work hard to make changes and then do not give themselves the feedback to know that the changes are working, they start to drift away from them. 
So using either a scale for daily or weekly weights and writing it down on a notebook and writing down or keeping track of food that's eaten on an app on your phone or in a notebook and writing down exercise being done really does make a difference. We know that people who track their food lose twice as much weight and keep it off uh, much better than people who don't track. Um, it's been known for over 30 years. And so we really don't want to lose that very basic piece of, you know, if you measure it, you manage it. Um, and so really encouraging patients to do the most comfortable thing for them, again, whether it's electronic or on paper, to really give themselves the sense of their progress that it's helping their health. That's the first important thing. The second strategy, which is, uh, goes along with this, is schedule or structure which now has to usually be a little more explicit during COVID-19 for many people when a lot of their structure is a little less uh, uh, pre-made for them. So um, the more healthy eating and activity can be made routine or automatic, the better people do. So people who set a time for exercise, whatever it is, do best than people who've have to decide every day when to fit it in. If people have food that they've planned for breakfast and they eat it at about the same time every day, they're much more consistent in that than if they're kind of catching something and deciding every morning. So one of the most powerful tools we have is to build it into our system or make it routine. And that really helps um, essentially us work for ourselves without so much work. So that tracking and that structure, it cannot be emphasized enough for long-term persistent success. Um, so uh, this is true for activity and food. Um, you know, usually people think they eat a variety of food, but they really don't. Usually they only have one or three to two or three options for breakfast and lunch especially. And so helping people plan to shop ahead and have those things on hand or having them in the freezer really helps uh, make sure that even when it gets hectic during the week, they can succeed and make the healthy choice the easy choice. It just really reduces frustration and increases empowerment. And how do you help patients that are comfort or stress eating? Right now, this is a very big deal. Um, as I mentioned, the patients earlier who, you know, really is struggling through the day with kind of staying away from the kitchen. There's a couple things. First of all, you want to eat for fullness and satisfaction first. The foods that we stress eat with actually tend to make us hungry because they activate our reward system. So the foods that make us satisfied or full are making sure we have enough healthy protein through the day and enough produce through the day that vegetables either are cooked or fresh and fruit as well. Having enough of those in our regular meals helps us keep um, full and satisfied for longer. Um, so that's the first place to start. The second place that we already mentioned from a system standpoint is in most cases when we have urges to comfort eat, we're likely to indulge in it if it's right there. So the second thing we talked about is really keeping it out of the house. The third thing, which is perhaps the new and most important thing, is, is the feelings are uncomfortable. Um, there is, as one of my uh, colleagues used to say, there is no um, comfort eating without discomfort. And so what you want to do when you have those uncomfortable feelings that make you want to stress eat is figure out a way to get comfort that is healthy. So two things to do that a lot of people have shown help for this long term is when people get stressed, instead of reaching for food, maybe get a glass of water and make a phone call so you can talk it off or make a phone call and get on your treadmill and walk it off. So one of the things we know is even though those feelings are uncomfortable, if you can say, you know, I'm going to wait 15 minutes and I'm going to share my feelings with somebody, I'm going to take a walk, a lot of times you can turn the volume down on those urges enough that your anxiety is less, your irritability is less, and your mood's better, and you don't need to hurt your health uh, because of your uncomfortable feeling. 
Other things people try include if it's, you know, evening or at time they can, taking a hot bath, having tea, mindfulness and meditation, and there's apps to help with those things. Um, for other people, gardening and, and, and being with a pet can really help. So doing things that really reduce irritability and cause comfort without hurting health are the ways of, of really trying to manage feelings that led to stress eating. Healthy emotional and physical connection are real human needs that improve the quality of life, reduce the risk of disease, improve mental health, and lengthen life. Why is maintaining social connections important during COVID-19? This is a really important issue, and one prior to COVID-19, I think many people took for granted. When we reduce or lose our connections with others, our well-being and health can suffer. Social distancing is very important right now, and it's important for our patients' health. But on the other hand, what we need to do is be socially distanced, but not socially isolated. The health consequences of loneliness and social isolation are actually very well known and have been studied a lot, particularly in our elders and those with mental illness and other issues. And what we know is social isolation is associated with increased risk of depression, cognitive decline, cardiovascular disease, dementia, and premature mortality. The impact of prolonged social isolation can be similar to smoking one and a half packs a day or having moderate to severe obesity. When people are isolated, they have an increased risk for unhealthy food consumption and aggressive behaviors that further worsens their health. On the flip side, health benefits associated with good social connectedness include better physical and mental health, reduced cardiovascular risks, and problem solving and lifespan that is lengthened. So what's really important here is there's not just a harm from social isolation, there's an improvement when we reduce social isolation. Perhaps the one thing in COVID that may be better for people who live far from parents and loved ones is that there are increased ways to increase social connectedness. So it's very important to our patients who are feeling isolated or who are worrying about people that they love who might be isolated to really work with them uh, to identify that as a problem that's serious. So Dr. Seeholzer, why is it so much harder to maintain relationships in COVID? The fear of spreading and getting COVID has been a challenge that's left many people having a hard time keeping contact in a socially rewarding way. Usual resources of relationships are absent or less frequent. Social activities with others, like going to church services, seeing people at work, seeing people in the community, all those things, those gatherings just don't happen and they were built automatically into our lives before. So there's not a natural replacement for those things. And so suddenly you realize that, my goodness, I really don't see many people in many spheres of my life that I really had regular contact with before. So if people follow the recommendations for social distancing, particularly for older people with chronic health conditions, their social contact can become quite limited. They do fewer errands in the community, which are also an important source of social contact with different vendors in the neighborhood and things like that, and now they're seeing their friends less as well. What we know is that regular visits with family and friends are also happening less, and there's no hugs, and physical contact also matters. And so what we know is technology can help bridging a gap, but for many people, this is still a barrier that's really difficult to overcome for those without computer skills or have low comfort using technology or who don't have access to smartphone, internet, things like that. So Dr. Seeholzer, how can we help our patients maintain their social connectedness during this time? So 
it's really important to help people know that we want to make contact with other people as frequent and real as possible. So the dose, how often we see each other, and what kind of contact depends on the impact it makes. So you need quantity time as much as quality time. So even when hugging is discouraged, there is physical and emotional value to laying eyes on a loved one. So if it's safe to sit with masks apart in an area outside or in a large room for a period of time, that's going to be your best contact uh, as far as our bodies and emotions taking that in. The next best after being present with each other when it's safe is video calls. Many people who really aren't comfortable with technology really have been helped to get comfortable with technology. I think there's a lot of elders who've really been FaceTiming and things like that now that we're money months into COVID. Next after the video call is hearing voice. We know that voice really, really helps as well. And then mail and texting also help. But one of the things that's important is it's not one or the other, it's what they add up to in value. And so one of the pieces I started with is we need quantity as much as quality. So you want to make sure some of that high quality contacts in their lives when you're asking who do you actually see, but you help encourage people to reach out as much as possible because the number of people they contact, the variety of different parts of their lives, peers, children, community members, all those things add up to that value. The other thing that's important is pets can really help with the physical need for contact in those who are isolated and live alone. Um, and they often increase physical activity as well. So encourage patients to ask for and plan regular contact with friends, as I mentioned, phone, email, social media, and porch visits. And if they have a pet, really encourage them to spend time with the pet. And if they can, walk the pet. Um, there's studies that show that people who have dogs walk more than people who don't. And the other thing is helping people get services they need. So connecting them with social supports where they might get in contact with the senior center and understand how to get either delivery services or transportation services to get access to what they need as well. The other piece is if it's possible, whether it's by phone-in or presence, if it's safe, um, is encouraging people to attend to their spiritual needs. For many people, the church community is a very, very pivotal part of their lives, and encouraging them to safely stay connected in that way and to call a minister or a church person if they're isolated. Um, most churches really have active outreach right now and are looking to connect people, um, and that's something that really, as long as people reach out, people are very responsive to right now. So Dr. Seeholzer, some patients may be in caregiver roles where they may be experiencing increased responsibilities and experiencing caregiver burnout. How do we best support and advise these individuals? One of the things that you need to do is let the caregivers that you take care of know that they need to take the time to plan and care for themselves. Um, this is how they can stay healthy and be there for those they love. Um, many in a caregiver support role do not commit to time with themselves. Um, even if it's journaling or voice recording or other ways to check in on their thoughts, it makes a significant difference. Um, so this is really, really important for our caregivers. And in practical ways, as we've talked about prior with lifestyle and things like that, it's really important to do the basics, to make sure you get enough and good quality sleep with electronics off in a quiet room. That's really key to self-care, to mood, to immune system to know your personal limitations and when to ask for help. Just because somebody needs the help doesn't mean the person needs to provide it. It might mean that they need to be connected to a resource to get the help. And encourage positive thinking and reinforce healthy coping skills. That's a really important thing is to really help people be positive about what they're doing and look at what they can do and let go of what they can't do. One of the things that's a good resource for this is in Cardio, we have an effective joyful teams group. And really looking at the, some of the resources there might be helpful to many patients who are also caregivers.
So these caregivers, as well as so many of us, are experiencing stress. How do you talk to patients about what stress is? You know, it's funny. People talk about having stress, but if you ask somebody to define it, they often can't explain it very well. It's it's one of those things that they know it when they feel it, right? But I think it's important to normalize when we talk about stress with patients so they don't feel overwhelmed and helpless. Stress is a normal part of life, and it's the body's reaction to change. And we all have changes endlessly through our lives. So the fact that we have stress isn't concerning in and of itself. It's how we react or respond to it that is the difference between whether or not we can do okay. So stress is experienced physically, it's experienced emotionally, it's experienced mentally or through a combination of these. And although stress is seen as negative, stress actually can be a positive um, emotion for things like starting a new job, having a child, getting married. These all cause stress, they're all changes. But those kinds of stresses are generally positive, short-lived, and they're within a person's ability to cope. When people say they're stressed, usually what they really mean is they're talking about unhealthy stress. And unhealthy stress is when a person faces constant challenges and they're not able to get relief or relaxation between stressors. And this overwhelms the individual's ability to effectively cope. And if stress isn't managed in a healthy way, it may lead to health problems or make existing health conditions worse. Unhealthy ways that people cope with stress include using drugs or alcohol, overeating, overspending, gambling, yelling, arguing, isolating yourself, losing yourself in distractions like the internet. These are problems that then further the unhealthy stress. And this is where we start to worry. So many of our patients have turned to unhealthier coping mechanisms to deal with their stress. How do we talk to our patients about alcohol and tobacco use and how this may have changed during the pandemic? I think it's important to help people understand that even though what they're going through, they're going through alone, lots of people are going through it. And so I think we need to let patients know that alcohol and tobacco use in general among the population of our state is certainly increased since the start of the pandemic. You want to make it say that because you want to let people know that we're checking on that in all patients so you don't make people feel like they're being checked on because perhaps of a behavior or a flag in themselves. And so what you do then is you ask about what's usual in the last month for their drinking or tobacco use. So, you know, setting that context of it's been up in the state for a lot of people, we're checking in on patients, what's changed for you? Alcohol, for some people, particularly when stress levels are high, really may increase the risk of addiction at any time of life. So those who live alone or have fewer social supports and those who do not have a regular schedule um, and don't have out-of-home work, so they're home all the time, for these people, alcohol use is particularly a risk. So you have to respect the impact that alcohol can have in unintended ways. Alcohol can also raise blood pressure and blood sugar levels and increase the risk for liver disease, some cancers, and just injuries from loss of balance when people are both tired and have some alcohol on board. For those who are smokers, uh, many have restarted again, um, and many have increased their basic use. What's really important to patients to not make them feel helpless or failed is to talk to them about the fact that even increasing tobacco use can increase the risk of serious medical problems. Um, and so in Ohio, there's a lot of resources to help 
reduce and stop tobacco use, which really can cause so many health problems. And quitting can lead to improved health quite quickly. So the Ohio Quit Line and medications together work best for success. There's other tobacco resources that some people have in their area for counseling. And, and if you have those, offering them to patients is terrific. For alcohol cessation support, you may need to connect with social work um, if somebody has intensive outpatient program needs. And if somebody's really taking in a very steady and considerable amount of alcohol, it may be important to call and find out what the availability of inpatient detoxification programs are because, of course, um, alcohol withdrawal can be dangerous and not just uncomfortable. For those patients who've worked in the past with AA, it's helpful to go online and find out um, where things are, uh, basically the where's a meeting in your area. Um, what's important now, and this has really left a lot of our patients uh, struggling to find community, is that obviously with COVID, many meetings have been canceled, um, but more meetings now that we're months into it are available by Zoom, and some have resumed with masks in larger areas. So if you go online to the um, AA areas, um, people can sometimes find what meetings have resumed and find out which ones they can connect with virtually or in person. Those are some great resources. Thank you. COVID-19 has forced us to change many of our behaviors and patterns. One area in particular that has been impacted is patients' ability to access transportation and healthcare. Many of our patients who rely on public transportation are having difficulty getting where they need to go. What can we do to help patients who rely on mass transit for healthcare and food access? This is a, a very significant challenge for people, whether they're depending on rides with people who normally uh, would help them, but now with social distancing hesitate, um, or people who are in areas where they need buses and are concerned about going on the buses. One of the things about prescription medication is for many places, if prescription medication um, is a challenge, Many of the pharmacies and health plans are now doing free and low-cost mail order options. This is one of the areas that's perhaps changed the most since COVID-19. So there's new options, again, to reduce the burden to get your medications and maintain them during the pandemic. So I think it's really important if a patient's not sure for them to call their healthcare plan and find out what's being offered. The other thing that's really important too is we as healthcare providers can limit the burden of transportation on them as well. For patients who cannot or are afraid to come into the office, um, one of the important things is for us to offer remote healthcare options as much as is practical with good medicine. Now, many uh, plans, including Medicare, cover blood pressure cuffs and for our diabetics, glucometers and thermometers, and some even cover scales. And if we're able to get that equipment to people, we can do video visits and telehealth visits that really still have data for us and can really help us keep a low uh, risk interaction and a low burden interaction uh, while getting the data we need to make good care. So when they are using transportation, um, a patient also needs to be empowered to really understand they can seriously lower their risk. Remind patients to always carry a mask with them and use it. Um, it's required to ride buses, um, and they really should be doing it if they're taking taxis and other things as well. They really should look at sitting apart from other people and really aim at six feet or more. It does make a difference. You want to discuss with them the need of touching that T-zone where germs can get in, the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. So really trying to keep your hands away from your face, maintaining that social distancing in the bus shelters as well, even if it's not marked for that, and checking with the bus service to know when the most crowded times are if they have options to avoid them as well. The other piece too, which is very simple, it might be hard in tough weather and with work schedules, but if a bus is really crowded or a train is really crowded, 
try and wait for the next one if possible. The other piece, those are, you know, meeting medical needs, meeting meeting work needs. But if shopping or economic issues have made it difficult for patients to get enough or good quality foods, in much of Ohio, you can go to a resource by calling 411 for many counties, and you can connect with social work resources about food pantries, free stores, and pop-up produce markets. And these often can sometimes even deliver food as well. So it's really important to know that there's resources locally that can be tapped into. The other thing when we're picking things is there's some healthier options we can do when we can't get fresh stuff. Eggs, canned tuna, chicken, and beans can be the basis of the high protein we need in our meals to keep us full and, and to be the source of good nutrition. It's important to rinse um, and oven roast canned vegetables to improve their flavor. Um, you can use unsweetened teas or waters instead of soda, and that's just a general uh, improved uh, health maneuver anyway. Um, and the other piece, too, when you're really struggling is keep a grocery list with you so that if you're able, when you're out, do go out to pass the selection of those things, you get them while you're out. So keeping that with you can be helpful. Those are just some of the ways in which you can help make your times out efficient and get the resources you can to not go out when you don't need to. There are so many unique needs right now for our patients. What is the final point that you would like to emphasize with our audience today? I think the most important thing to let people know is that when everybody's dealing with so many things right now, it's easy to forget to have the conversation about not what's going wrong, not what's hard, but what are you doing to stay healthy and care for yourself? I think it's empowering and prioritizing to help people understand the importance of maintaining health and ensuring healthy coping mechanisms. I don't think we can overemphasize that. Um, it's important to remind our patients that they are resourceful, creative people who have already made unique and good solutions in many parts of their lives and can do so now with these challenges. Um, we're just part of a larger care team for them, but they have larger areas of supports in their life as well. We need to refer to our other members of our care team, dietitians, mental health professionals, and other clinicians, but also encourage the patient to identify who might be their personal care team as well. The other thing to remember as we talk to patients who, again, are their own creative healthcare providers, is that when they help others in balance and in safe ways, they also are going to find this time more gratifying and more satisfying as well. Lastly, this is really an unprecedented time in our history, and I think discussing the importance of good self-care during this time is an imperative to keep patients healthy. Since every patient has a unique set of circumstances, it's really important to meet patients where they're at and talk through their individual needs as it relates to healthy living and lifestyle. Exercise, diet, stress management, and social connectedness are critical to health and well-being. Thank you to our featured guests for joining us today. And a special thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.